you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, turn to Psalm 8, which is the next psalm, uh, right after number 7, <laughs> and right before number 9. So uh, there is a logic to what, what we're doing today. Psalm 8. And my uh, father didn't want to let me preach Psalm 8. Um, he wanted to do it, but I told him that was one of my favorites. And I had worked on it a lot. And so uh, he let me take Psalm 8. He might preach it again next week if I screw it up. So, uh, <laughs> well, you're probably all familiar with this psalm. Um, because it's been made into a very popular praise song. Uh, let's read through it, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about the introduction. We'll take it verse by verse, and then if we have any time, we'll go to the New Testament, because this psalm is quoted two or three times in the New Testament um, in very important passages. So if you're in Psalm 8, um, it reads, For the choir director, on the Giddith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen. Also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens. And the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, it's a, it's a good sized psalm, isn't it? Nine verses. Uh, perfect to cover in one lesson. Um, not like Psalm 119, which would take you know, a couple of years to preach. But, um, and it's nice because it's uh, almost like you have bookends, right? It begins with, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it ends with that. So if you don't get the point after reading this psalm, that the main idea in the psalm is that the Lord's name is majestic and that it's majestic in all the earth, then you, I think you miss... The, the signal that uh, the psalmist is giving you. Let's look at the introduction here, and, and what I mean by that is the ascription, which is, in my Bible, in little small letters up at the top. Now, these ascriptions, um, although they show up in most of our Bibles, they were added when the psalms were collected as a book. Okay, And so, um, they're also very mysterious as to where they came from, who wrote these ascriptions, um, and what they mean. This one says that it's for the choir director, so that could mean that uh, this was written by someone else for given to the choir director to add to his collection. It could actually mean, the Hebrew would work, um, that it's by the choir director, that he's actually the one who wrote this. Okay. Then we have the phrase, on the giddith, and you all know what the giddith is, so I'm not going to cover that. Um, no, I, to be honest, no one knows what the giddith is. <laughs> I told you these things are mysterious. Um, so people either think it's an instrument, uh, kind of like the guitar, although I don't think the word comes from get it, um, a stringed instrument that, it, that this song would be played on, 
or the key that it's supposed to be played according to. So some of your Bibles might say according to the Giddick. And then it says that it's a psalm of David. But once again, this could mean either that David wrote it or that it was written for David. You know, if you're a king in the ancient Near East, people write songs for you in your honor. Um, and so uh, traditionally, David has been taken as the author of this, and uh, he may very well be the psalmist. Well, let's look at this uh, passage, and we'll go through verse by verse. The basic idea of this psalm is that it's a praise psalm. So whoever adapted it to be a praise song made a very good choice. It's not a dirge. It's not a lament, right? You've run into some of those psalms. It's praising the Lord. It's a very happy song. Last time I was here, I called on James 4 and James 5. Man, those were miserable. Whoa to the rich. This is a happy song. I'm very glad to be able to speak on this. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And, and more than that, more than a praise song, it's a creation song. So you're familiar with other creation psalms like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the, work, the, the glory of the Lord, right? Um, and, and these songs written by David that celebrate God's creation. Well, where do you read about creation in the Bible most prominently? The beginning, right? Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3. And so a key to understanding these creation psalms is to read them alongside Genesis 1 to 3, and that's what we'll be doing today. So we'll, we'll be looking back at Genesis 1 and uh, seeing how they compare. Well, look at verse 1. It says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, I'm sure that we've all uh, been taught this before. We have LORD in all caps. In my Bible anyway, if you have a Bible that's worth anything, it's in all caps. <laughs> and then LORD in lowercase, right? And the reason that the typesetters of the King James Version, this is the New American Standard Version, the reason they do that is because it's translating two different Hebrew words. Uh, they got translated into Greek with the same word, and it comes into English being Lord, but it's two, if you were hearing it in Hebrew, you would be hearing two different words, and the first one is the covenant name. So anytime you see Lord in all caps, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, sometimes that's, that's his name, okay? That's a personal name that he reveals to Moses. And then the second one, Lord in lowercase, is a title. Ruler, master. Translating the Hebrew Adonai. Probably all familiar with that. And so what, what David is saying is, is, O Lord Yahweh, our master. Okay? Now that... I think that they should translate it master. I just think, honestly, that's a little bit confusing to have, O Lord, our Lord. It's, it sounds really good when you sing it, but it doesn't communicate what it needs to, I don't think. So, O Lord, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our king, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is a, this is a song written to a king. God is the king. Okay, he created the whole earth. He's the king over the whole earth. He's the ruler and the master. And so this is celebrating God's kingly majesty. The psalmist says, How majestic or how glorious is your name in all the earth. And the name isn't just, that's not just, you know, what's on God's mailbox or something like that, okay? The name here means his reputation. 
his fame, his honor. The name is it represents you as a person. And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, your reputation shines everywhere in the world. And we'll find out why. His name is majestic in all the earth. Everyone throughout the whole earth at some point or another has to acknowledge God's glory. And, and we'll see why the psalmist says that his name is majestic in the earth. Because this psalm is a psalm about things that go on on the earth. The earth is the theater of God's glory. Now look at what the psalmist says. He switches from earth to heaven. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Well, this could mean, this, this, there are a couple different ways to take this, and that's always the, the case in, in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are poetry. Anyone ever have to learn a second language and read poetry in the second language? It's hard, isn't it? Po poets break all the rules, don't they? They use obscure language to evoke and, and um, push you in a direction or get a reaction. And so sometimes the language is really difficult in poetry. I mean, you know, you can give Shakespeare uh, uh, to someone and they won't even know what, what Shakespeare's saying. It's a very difficult poetic type language, even though it's not a poem. Most of Shakespeare's plays of course aren't poems. You've displayed your splendor above the heavens. The psalmist could be saying, look, your name is majestic in the earth and in the heavens. That covers everything, doesn't it? The heavens and the earth. That's everything from A to Z. Or, and I think this may even be better, a better way to understand it, that the splendor that is God's above the heavens has now, through creation and the glories of creation, been shown on earth. And that gives a whole new twist to it, doesn't it? That the glory that God has above the heavens is actually, actually shining through in creation. So that you're not locked out from seeing God's glory even though He's above the heavens, seated in the heavenly places. You, you can actually see God's glory shining through creation. That's the worldview of these creation psalms, I think. So I think that may be a better way to take it. Now look, he goes from the heavens and the earth as big as you can get down to tiny little part of creation. Verse 2. From the mouths of infants in nursing babes, you have established strength. That's as small as you can get, isn't it? A baby that still hasn't been weaned. An infant. Now, once again, there's a translation issue in this verse. I always hate it when I have to teach and there's translation issues. But this is one that's... Uh... You ever remember this psalm on the lips of Jesus? You remember when Jesus comes... Marching into Jerusalem, not marching, riding on the donkey. And all the kids in the temple are screaming out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And you remember what the Jewish leaders do? They come up to Jesus and they say, You hear what these kids are saying? Shut them up! Tell them to shut up! And Jesus quotes the psalm in Matthew 21 and he says, How did you ever read? From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Well, that's not what my translation says. That might, it says you've established strength. So I'm going to go with Jesus on this one and not with the translators of the New American Standard. All right. I think what the psalmist is really saying 
is that God's glory that's above the heavens is shining through creation, even out of the mouths of babies. Babies are praising God's glory. When they're crying out, when they're singing to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David, that's God's glory even being shown through babies, the smallest humans possible. The rest of verse 2 tells us the reason that God even makes babies sing. And it's exactly the the way that it works out in Jesus' story. It shuts his enemies up. Do you ever notice uh, that you can have the most hard-type person and and put a little baby in his arms? And what happens? It softens up. That's kind of a a common thing that happens in the movies, isn't it? You have the hardened criminal, and somehow he ends up with a baby in his arms, and pretty soon he's cooing and everything to the baby. Something about little kids, little babies, that even makes God's adversaries and enemies shut up, calm down, recognize God's majesty and glory. All right, look at verse 3, because the psalmist moves once again from the small all the way up to the, the biggest possible, the biggest conceivable scope. Verse 3, he says, When I consider your heavens that's that's the sky that's the expanse the work of your fingers that's right it's these things are directly attributable to god these aren't random chance flinging stars and solar systems out in outer space this is directly attributable to god the works of his fingers and think about that that's like why, why does he say fingers and not hands could just could mean the same thing right but to, to me, the picture is of God placing each star specifically. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, and you can picture David out in the field, maybe as a shepherd, just gazing up at the sky in wonder, writing this song. The moon and the stars, which you've ordained, you've set them in motion. Think about that. Look at the look at the context that he's putting in it. When I look at this huge expanse, the question naturally arises, doesn't it, of verse four? What is man? What is man that you are that you take thought of him? Man is tiny compared to the the, the vastness of the universe. Yeah, I think that's something that we've lost a lot in the modern world. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up as a city boy. Um, and then uh, when I came back to Texas from my graduate work, I ended up in Uptown. Well, guess how many stars you can see in Uptown? None. Right? You can look up and all you see is the lights of the buildings. But my wife is from Glen Rose which is way out in the country. And uh, when I go out to Glen Rose, I can go outside and look up, and the whole sky is just lit up with stars. And i got to tell you, it's unsettling to me. I mean, on the one hand, it's great. But on the other hand, I can get very easily depressed looking up at the stars. Because you begin, you know, if you live a life that's saturated with media and just uh, on a horizontal level, you can begin feeling pretty big. 
But man, when you look up at the stars, then you think, oh, those stars have been there a long time. I'm not going to be here very long. Those are really big, really far away, and I'm about as tiny as it, as it gets, and insignificant as it gets. And I think that's the thought that, that the psalmist has here. What is man that you take thought of him? I mean, really, what, what is the significance of man in light of the enormity of creation? A couple days ago, uh, we had ants coming in our side door, and I found out that they had built a little ant pile there. And I told Renee, because, you know, that's, that's a woman's job, go get the, <laughs> go get the ant killer. <laughs> go get the ant killer. And so she put it on there, and the ants started scattering, and Renee got all upset. Well, the ants are dying, man. Look, the big mounds that they built. And all, all that work they put into it. I thought, that was ridiculous. Ants! That's what, that's what we are in comparison to God. And, and God, He actually thinks of us. It's unbelievable. I wouldn't give a second thought to wiping out that ant pile. <laughs> Certainly not to each individual little ant, right? Psalm 144 says that man is like a mere breath. How long does that last? Not, not long at all. His days are like a passing shadow. Doesn't last long at all. I mean, you can read the whole book of Ecclesiastes. A long meditation on the fact that humanity ultimately is vanity. Not ultimately. Humanity seems to be vanity. Nothingness. But the psalmist isn't depressed by this. He's leading up to something. The psalmist, the psalmist actually, he knows that God takes thought of man. He knows that God cares for the Son of Man. I mean, that's something that's all throughout the Bible, that God actually is involved in individual people's lives. Jesus says that His Father has numbered every hair on your head, that He knows when sparrows fall from the sky. He's going to take care of you. The question is, why? Why? Why would he ever take care of us? We're so small and insignificant. What is it? Why is it that he, that he takes thought of us? And verse 5 gives the reason. Actually, verses 5 through 8. So, notice the flow of thought in this. He, he's posing a question, and now he's going to answer it. And we get the answer in verses 5 through 8. What is man? Well, look, look at creation. Look at his... Remember, the psalmist is thinking about Genesis. Okay? And so when he's going to think about man, he's going to think back to Genesis. And what is man in Genesis? Some random descendant from the apes? The result of a bunch of mutations? Crawling up of some, uh, out of some primordial soup? No one there to see him? No reason or rationale behind his existence? No, he's, he's actually... Well, think about Genesis. What do we have? We have six days in which God creates everything. And he saves the, the best for last. In other words, creation isn't very good until man's created, right? 
this whole creation is ultimately Genesis, I think, would lead us to believe for man to place man into it. It's man is the crowning point of creation. And so you could get to thinking when you look at the heavens and the stars that man is nothing. Just a dot. An insignificant dot. But when you read Genesis, you get the truth from God's point of view. That God created everything and put man at the top. The very pinnacle of creation. And, and the psalmist uses really, really strong language. A little lower than God. Well, God is above everything. So if you're just one notch below God, that means you're above everything, right? You are just below God and over top of all creation, which is exactly what Genesis says. You've crowned Him with glory and majesty. You've, you, God, have made man second only to you. And more than that, along with that, you have made him a king. It's very important to notice the metaphors and the metaphorical language in, in the Psalms. You crown him. Well, who wears crowns? Kings. The psalmist is saying God made man a king. What is man? He's God's kingly creation. That's the You've crowned him with glory and majesty. Now, where's the last time you saw that language? Glory and majesty. Back up in verse 1, right? Majesty and splendor. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that's said of God, your majesty and splendor, now is attributed to man. You get the idea, I don't know, that man is created in the image of God. That man was created to reflect God's glory like a mirror reflecting the sun and it's you can't look at a, a mirror that's reflecting the sun it's as bright as the sun isn't it it's just shining too bright to look at and that's the picture that we have of man here is that man is crowned with glory and majesty man is made in the image of God man is reflecting God's glory look at verse 6 well what does a king do he rules that's exactly what the psalmist says, you made him to rule over the works of your hands. God created all these things and then installed man as the king, the ruler. Gave him dominion. You've put all these things under his feet. And that's a picture of a king having a footstool. A lot of times kings, when they conquered another king, they would say, um, you know, Mr. King of some other country, right? You come over here and you get down on your hands and knees and you're going to be my ottoman today. Okay, I'm going to rest my feet on you. And they'd sit on their throne. That's pretty demeaning, isn't it? Is there any doubt at that point who's the king and who's the, who's the servant? You put everything under his feet as a footstool. Well, what is everything? All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. The, the psalmist is getting this straight from Genesis 1. These terms, these categories, the way creation is divided up, direct quotes from Genesis 1. Everything that God creates up till the creation of man, everything is put on the human's feet. 
So, I said, the psalmist is getting this idea from Genesis 1. So flip on back to Genesis chapter 1, and let's see specifically where he's getting this idea. Think about Psalm 8 as a commentary on Genesis 1. And you know Genesis 1 um, probably very well. And you have the description of the different uh, parts of creation as they're made in their order. You can see in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, Genesis 1.24, cattle, creeping things, the beasts of the earth after their kind, it was so. God made the beasts of the earth, so it was good. Then, God said, verse 26, and this is the key, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, now there's a lot of debate over what the image of God is. If you took a systematic theology class at Criswell College, you would get exposed to about ten different views on what is the image of God. Is it um, rationality? Is it the soul? Is it the spirit? Um, is it relationality? Maybe. Is it the ability to communicate? And these are all good answers and probably have some truth to them. Um, uh, one of the early church fathers says that it's the fact that man walks upright. That's probably not such a good answer. Um, what does the text lead us to believe? Look at this. This is a really important. What is the image of God? Or if you want to sound really smart, you say it in Latin. The Imago Dei. You can say it with a British accent, then you really sound smart. <laughs> what is the image of God according to Genesis 1? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And here, God actually is going to explain exactly what being made in his image means. It's very good to let scripture interpret scripture. Here's what it means. Let them be in our image. Let them do what? Rule. See, God is king. God creates man in his image. Man is installed as king. To, to rule. Let them rule over what? Fish of the sea. Now it's going to sound just like Psalm 8. Birds of the sky. Cattle over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. So don't get to thinking that women are somehow less in the image of God. Uh, that's a mistake that theologians have often made. God blessed them, verse 28, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Now, fill the earth and do what? Subdue it. What does a king do to territories? Subdues it, right? Takes dominion. And do what? And rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is this passage? What is creation all about? It's the installation of a king. Now you get the idea that the psalmist had. That God has crowned man with glory and majesty and made him to rule over all the earth. 
and put everything under his feet. Man is a king, at least he's meant to be. That's the image of God. Now, this is, a, I think, a really helpful picture. Okay, remember that the Old Testament is written a long time ago in a very different culture, the ancient Near East. Okay? And, and think about what kings would do in the ancient Near East. Kings would hire a sculptor and get that sculptor to make statues of themselves. Okay? Make a statue of the king. Carve this statue so it looks like me. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put that statue all throughout my kingdom. What? An image. Okay. I'm going to make an image of myself. I'm going to put it all throughout my kingdom. Why would you do that? Why would you fill the kingdom with your image? Marking out your territory. Everywhere your subjects go, what they're going to see is, this is the king's territory. There's his image. This is a reminder of who I'm under, the king. His image fills the land. That's what God is doing in Genesis 1. Claiming the earth. Marking out the earth as his territory. Fill the earth with my image, he tells man. Take dominion. Subdue it. Rule it. You'll be my, my king in my place. Ruling over this. A vice regent. And so this is very rich. I think sometimes we just skim over it. We don't even notice that this is kingly language and that anyone reading this in the ancient Near East would see that man was being installed as a king over the earth and that God was filling the earth with his image, with his glory. I think that's the best answer to the image of God. So what's the psalmist's answer to his question, Psalm 8? What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him? Well, on the one hand, man's nothing, right? But on the other hand, he's just a little bit lower than God. He's the place that God has chosen to display His glory. He's what God has chosen to rule the earth, to be His image. What is man? According to Genesis, he's the king of the world. That's pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Compare that with... Uh, the humanist or the evolutionary answer. What is man? Random collocation of molecules somehow has you know, intelligence or cognitive abilities. There's the famous quote of Bertrand Russell. The humanists, and I think really ultimately when you get down to it, well, they're not humanists. This Psalm 8 is, is, is truly humanist. In the sense of putting humanity in its right place. Listen to what Bertrand Russell said and see if, see if this sounds like a, a, a majestic portrait. Okay? See if this sounds like uh, something that you, um, you know, that, that could motivate you to live your life in an honorable way. Bertrand Russell says, Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, Reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter. It's always interesting to me how they tend to deify matter. It's omnipotent. Well, that's something you say about God, isn't it? Omni sounds very religious to me. 
omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor. Boy, interesting choice of words. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality. Triviality for a moment, and then nothing. Just, that's your life. Triviality for a moment, nothingness. Happy vision, isn't it? Not exactly the same as the psalmist gives us. Compare that answer with the answer of the psalm. What is man? Not a, not a meaningless triviality. God's kingly ruler created to be king over the earth, to cultivate the land, to create, to have relationships, to love, to reflect God. What is man? King of the world. And so with that in mind, boy, you can understand how the psalm would end with the, the same way that it began. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And when you look at humanity and the intricacies and the just the amazing thought that went into creating humanity, how could you not say how majestic is the Lord's name? Well, you have a major problem when you read Psalm 8 and you hear that. I think you should have a major problem. Because there is something to, to Russell's statement that man is a triviality. Is it there? I mean, there's, there's a reason that that mindset has captivated people. I mean, read Psalm 8 and, and see if it's true. Is it true? You make him to rule on the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. Because uh, I don't feel like I have dominion over creation. And you can, all you need to do to see that is just, uh, you know, have a, have a puppy or something like that. And see how well it obeys you. All you need to do to see how much dominion you have is go out into the jungle by yourself. See who's the king of the jungle, right? All you need to do to see how much dominion you have over creation it just, these go sail into the middle of a hurricane. See how that works, right? I mean, there's something, something has gone wrong since, since creation, hasn't it? Psalm 8 depicts man in his original position, created to rule on behalf of God, but something happened. So there's an irony to Psalm 8. Man is a king, but he's down in the gutter now. Man's a king, but his life is cut short tragically. I mean, if you can have dominion all you want, um, and it's not going to last. You can strive and fight for political power, and then you die, and it's all over. Death ultimately shows that our whatever dominion we have is a sham. Death has the ultimate say, doesn't it? Death has us all under its footstool. We're all enslaved to death, ultimately. There, there's this, this dominion. Yes, there are, there are echoes of it, but it's been lost. You know, I think that most of people's behavior can be explained along these lines. 
that there was that you were created to rule and you were given dominion, but it's been lost. Um, I think that's why people uh, pursue things with such passion. You know, the sports star who who just practices and practices and beats his body to bring it under his control, all for that one moment when when everything will come together and he feels finally like he has what dominion. I think those are echoes. Ben Hogan said that when you hit the perfect golf shot, it just kind of vibrates right up the shaft of the club, right into his heart. That's a that's an experience that you're familiar with if you play golf. You know, why do you go out every week or every day, some of you, and play golf? That one shot that's perfect, right? That one shot for when for a moment everything just kind of comes together. What psychologists call flow. I think those are the reason people strive after that is because we have this memory, I guess, this built-in desire to have dominion. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, my parents-in-law sold us their old 1999 Lincoln Navigator. You know, if you know what a Lincoln Navigator is, it's a beast, right? <laughs> and this thing was on 18-inch wheels. So when we drove into the garage this morning, we hit the thing hanging over. It scared me. But you know what? Um, I think SUVs are an example of that. Why do, why do men always get these big power trucks, right? And SUVs. They're sitting up there like kings, right? I mean, I drive along in that, and I look down at the little people in the little cars down there. I feel like a king. Dominion that you were created for. But it's been lost. People spend all their lives trying to recapture just a taste of that. That's why they strive after power and, and money. And that's why people go hunting, I think. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. I think that's why people strive after sports and other things like that. But it's been lost. Well, what does the New Testament say? Very quickly, I just want to look at one passage. We could look at, at several, but flip over to 1 Corinthians because. Man, if we left Psalm 8 on that note, there would be little reason to sing How Majestic Is Your Name. So look at 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and look at the end of it at chapter 15, because Paul actually is going to allude to this passage. The storyline, as Paul tells it, is that man was indeed created to rule the world, as Psalm 8 says, but that's been lost. That death has snuck in and taken that rule and dominion away from us. Death, Paul calls the ultimate enemy, the last enemy. And look down at verse 24 as Paul talks about the resurrection. Verse 23. Actually, just look back one more verse in verse 22. As in Adam all die... So in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. He's already been raised from the dead. After that, those who are Christ it is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished 
is death. And then look at this. He quotes Psalm 8. You have it in all caps in your Bible? That means it's a quotation of the Old Testament. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. What Paul's saying here is that the dominion that Adam lost, Christ has regained. Christ has conquered death, the last enemy. Christ has been exalted to God's right hand as the king of the world. And that all those who follow Christ will likewise be raised to rule with Christ. That's the solution to the problem that Psalm 8 poses. Christ, the Messiah, the King of the world, installed by God to rule on His behalf. I could take you to the end of Revelation. Revelation 22, and the last picture that's given there is of humanity before God's face in the new creation. All tears having been wiped away, death having been swallowed up in victory, and it says they will reign forever and ever. That's the end of the story. The final note is not Bertrand Russell's note of brokenness and omnipotent matter rolling on its relentless way. Ultimately, just triviality. The final note is one of victory. Death has been overcome. Let's pray. Lord, when we consider these things, we can't help but say your name is majestic. That you have uh, shown us your glory in man throughout the world. We praise you for that. We praise you um, most especially for showing us your glory in Jesus, the Messiah, the true human being, God of true God, um, your anointed one whom you've installed as king, as ruler over all creation, and who promises us that if we are faithful, we will reign with him. Lord, we look at creation and it is truly very good. We thank you for giving it to us to enjoy, to rule. We praise you for your beneficence. You are a good king. You are the Lord, our Lord, and your name is majestic.